Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Helicaster Chain Show airs Wednesdays, 3 p.m. Eastern. The podcast always available online at HelicasterChain.com. Dot com. Here's something else. Female genital yes. mutilation. I came across this yes. and this just startled me. The number of women and girls at risk for female genital mutilation in the United States has more yes. than doubled in the past 10 years, according to new figures released by the Population Reference Bureau. Uh, and there are other people who have come out supporting this. And you know where this is happening the most in the U.S.? This, this is even more startling. California, New York, maybe Minnesota. I get that. What's going on here? This is terrifying to me. I can't say I know all the answers, except that I think there are communities that come to the United States and bring the cultural norms that they lived with for many, many years. And we haven't done a good enough job to figure out how to partner with those communities and really create the change that is needed. Startling. Female genital mutilation. More than 200 million girls and women alive today have been cut in 30 countries in Africa, the Middle East, Asia, and in the United States of America. Today on the Helicaster Jane Show, as horrifying as that statistic referenced is, there is good news, thanks in part to the two women who are my guests today. Joining me at my table, Joni Binder, author of a poignant, revealing, optimistic, and thought-provoking book, Mile 46, a look at the intimate lives of a traditional Maasai family, and Estes Solar, the expert on violence against women and children, founder and president of Futures Without Violence, and the driving force behind the Violence Against Women Act of 1994. You are in for an hour you won't soon forget. But first, welcome to the Hallie Casser Jane Show. I am your host, Hallie Casser Jane. The Hallie Casser Jane Show is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Get a free audiobook and 30-day trial today by visiting my website at HallieCasserJane.com and clicking on the Audible.com icon for your free book. Hey, what's more fun than a free book? And remember, the Hallie Kesser Jane Show is always available online at HallieKesserJane.com and a host of venues including Stitcher.com, Spreaker.com, TuneIn Radio, iTunes, 
Blog Talk Radio and on the iHeart Radio Network. Born in Los Angeles, a fourth generation Californian, Joni Binder grew up in the land of artists, dreamers, and sunshine. Leaving the sun bleached sands of her youth behind, Joni transplanted to the grit and hard-edged reality of New York and Columbia University. She earned her BFA in photography from California Institute of the Arts, where she now serves as a trustee. It was while she was at Cal Arts that Joni enrolled in a study abroad program in Kenya, where she became fluent in Swahili. It is about her time in Kenya, Africa, where she traveled extensively and where she lived for several weeks with the Maasai family, that is the source of the story chronicled in her new book, Mile 46, Face to Face in Maasai Land, which is a fascinating photographic and literary memoir, as fascinating as the woman you are about to meet. Now, a wife and mother of two, who has served as president of the Modern Art Council at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, and has become a strong advocate of arts education in California, and nationally as a Fine Arts Committee member and Education Committee co-chair for the Diplomatic Reception Rooms of the U.S. Department of State. She is currently helping to lead an international arts-driven campaign with Futures Without Violence and the Representation Project to raise awareness about healthy masculinity and its role in eliminating domestic violence. Let's talk. So, Joni, what yes. a terrific job. This I love this book. I love the packaging of this book and the company who produced it for you. Mile 46, Face to Face in Masailand. Masailand. Beautiful photographs. But more importantly, what a powerful, empowering, and thoughtful memoir you've created here. So let's get to the beginning of all of this. I'm always interested in what gets a person to travel to Africa. And how did the calling come to a young college student, Joni? Tell us that story. Oh, well, you know, I um, I grew up in Los Angeles and I had mad wanderlust because <laughs> it's such a car culture um, and it's so far away from anything else. And so my friends and I would always pile into our cars and take off for places. And I just had a thirst for that. And I saved money and I traveled when I graduated from high school. So by the time I got to college and I was studying some world music and had done a little bit of traveling but mostly Europe and Mexico and sort of the easier spots. I um, I just found that spot on the map and found a way to get there. And that was that. <laughs> and that was that. I that mean, personally, I don't think anyone's quite prepared for what they meet, though, when they do get there. You know, I remember the first time I landed in Africa and just a plane over the Entebbe airport, you know, and, and seeing the water and oh, my God, you know, it's just it's a startling place to, to arrive at. Do you recall those first impressions you had? I absolutely do. I mean, I was so young. Young, right? And I was so... You were what, 21 hopeful. at the time? Were you 21? I was 21. Yeah. Yeah, but, but hopeful and optimistic. And I, I think I've retained some of that. I hope so. <laughs> I um, think so. But certainly when I landed, I felt there was... What's that syndrome called? Do you know where they call it when people land in Jerusalem or Florence and they, they shake when they hit the ground and they, and they drop to their knees and they kiss the earth because there's something so historic and powerful about the place? I, I don't know that. I didn't know there was a name for it. I know of experience. 
realized it in any number of times. I'll have to ask my archaeologist friends because they're the ones that told me about it. But yeah, that's what happened. I got there and I felt this connection to human history and and something really profound. So yeah, I have a strong impression of that moment. And it's funny about Africa too. I, I suspect it's about everywhere and I've traveled a lot, as I'm sure you have. But you know, the first thing I did was like, oh, wow. And the second thing was, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into this time? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 But they just plow through it, right? I mean. Oh, oh, absolutely. Listen, I was a war correspondent. I don't know about you, but I mean, you know, there's nothing that, you know, you just go forward and that's what you do. But you were 21 years old at the time and, and, and it's a critical to your experience. So to tell us how long you were there, let's get, let's set the story up. What were you traveling there for in the first place and how long you wound up living with the Maasai? Because let's just get a background picture going. Sure, sure. So it started, like I said before, is a little bit spinning the globe and seeing where my finger landed. I knew I wanted to go to Africa. I'd been studying African music and also along with North Indian music and, and other things. And I just loved the feel of that. And I loved the freedom, I think, of being 21. And I had a little fender bender in my car and um, had a little extra cash because I went to the cheaper place to get it fixed than I was supposed to. <laughs> and I said to my parents, you know, I, I want to go to Africa. I went over to UCLA and I had, they had a room full of catalogs of school programs. I picked the one that had rolling admission and it was this one in Kenya and went. And so I took off from LA to Long Island where we had this meeting with Sieverick Coop and all the kids going over wow. all the different places around the world. And the program was a semester. So it was, was in total just over five months in Kenya. And I spent about six weeks with this one Maasai family, although I'd spent time another time with another Maasai family before that. Okay. So there you are and in, in Kenya and, and you probably, like most of us, you can never be prepared, you know, for what you're about to see. You're intrepid to be sure, fearless, that's clear. But here's <laughs> something that you wrote in the book that this struck me and I wrote it down. And during the night when the fire went out, there was always the threat of a lion attack, but the real danger wasn't the lions. It was the aching restlessness and isolation of the undereducated and impoverished. The club of the undereducated and impoverished. Let's talk about that. Mm, yeah, well, it's it's something that's striking, I think, in its universal quality. I mean, the truth is we have that population here in the United States. It, it's everywhere. But I think, actually, Darius Himes wrote my foreword. He introduced me at an event and he said, you know, I think you would have found this story no matter where you went. And I think that's true. It was very striking to me because I was so far out of touch from anything I knew. I was nowhere near home, nowhere near friends or mentors or parents or siblings. And I was left to my own devices. And that impression of what that meant was very, very powerful and and absolutely life-changing for me. Oh, for sure. But here's another aspect to that. Despite the abject poverty in a society that can be so cruel, as we're going to talk about in a minute, especially to women, there is this about African Africans, that despite the poverty and the cruelty, they are the most welcoming people, and I have traveled the globe, with a generosity of spirit like nobody else. That's my experience. Their warmth, their inclusiveness. It can be at once disarming and at first even overwhelming. And Westerners aren't used to that kind of spirit, right, Joni? Yeah, I think you're right. And and I find it actually probably agree. I took my family to Burma, Myanmar, over Christmas and New Year's last year. And it was my children's first experience in a culture like that. And they too, exactly as you describe it, it was disarming. They were shocked to see 
the poverty, the shoelessness and the, the ragged nature of clothing and, and the frail bodies, but they remarked ultimately on the smiles, the generosity, the warmth and the kindness and the willingness to share. And it is it's so powerful. It's very powerful in Africa, for sure. I, that was a distinct impression and, and a constant, actually, not just an impression. And, it, I, and I like to recall that. And I like to translate that, it's, you know, as best I can it's through what, the book, but also my actions. Well, for sure. But but I think I think that part of the power of your book is the fact that that theme is throughout the book, number one. Mm-hmm. And number two is this. It maybe something says something about where we are in this country, because, you know, if you go to any third world country, no matter how bad the politics are, or women's rights, any of the mm-hmm. trouble that might be there, what you do discover there is that warmth. It's a naivete, I think, in, in a sense, not ex- as exposed as Americans or Europeans are these days. And it's a part of the world that I wish we could get back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when I'm picking up your book and reading it, mm-hmm. I felt it. It warmed my heart. I was back where I wanted to be in a kinder, gentler place in some aspects than, yeah. than we yeah, know. No, it's it's a quite a contrast, that spectrum from that welcome that we feel as Westerners or just as exotic in some ways to them as perhaps they are to us, although I hate that word. But, you know, in terms of something new and something that brings out our best behavior. But at the same time, to your point, if we were born Maasai girls and lived that life, or frankly, I mean, I could name a dozen, I could name three dozen cultures where the lives of women are not nearly up to human scale. Like they're not living as complete women, citizens, yeah, or women. And that part is really heart wrenching. Right. Yes. So one of the things I think that the book brings to light is, you know, a lot of people are coming up to me and they're saying, oh, I loved your book. And I, uh, you know, I've been to Kenya and I visited Miss Island and da, 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 da. And I'm like, yeah, well, <laughs> you know, the one first impression, right? But just like if you stay anywhere for a longer amount of time, or you live with a family, you know, when the guards go down, things start to look a lot different. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. No question about it. But it is interesting, I think, to note that. And let me also say that mile 46 is also an adventurous story. Who could put that down? Oh, okay. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> I started reading that thing and I would go, boom, that's it. Never went to sleep. Just kept going till I got it to the end. Tell people what mile 46 is a reference to those. Yeah, sure. So where I lived was, you know, really the middle of nowhere. It was, <laughs> it was off of every beaten path. There were no roads, no electricity, no phones, no lights, no plumbing, nothing. And there were kiosks that had popped up sort of in between these bomas which are collections of huts where they sold, you know, big pens and beads and oil, stuff like that. And they called it mile 46 because there was a mile marker left in the ground from when the British were, you know, planning out the uh, the rail from Nairobi to Mombasa. And it would have been, as the crow flies, 46 miles from Nairobi to Mombasa. That was the 46 mile mark. Now the railroad did not go through this area, but it had it. That's uh, the 46th mile. Okay. Good to know. Right. If you're going to, we were talking about this terrific book. So you wind up living with this Maasai family. So let's talk about the Maasai people. I think a lot of us recognize them from old films and what have you, tall, beaded, beautiful. But who are they? Let's start with that, what they consider themselves. They think them themselves as the, one of the lost tribes of Israel. I know that, right? And and in fact, they actually practice a lot of Jewish tradition. There's a tribe like that, by the way, in Uganda. So there are, there are a few tribes all over East mm-hmm. Africa. But tell us more about who they are. Yeah, sure. So they do look different. 
different from many of the other African ethnic groups of East African tribes. They are a Nilotic people, meaning they came down the Nile, which is one of the reasons they do believe themselves to be one of the lost tribes of Israel. And as you said, they don't mix meat with milk, although their diet consists primarily of meat, milk, and blood, cow blood. Which we're going to talk about in a minute, but go ahead. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a beautiful people. They have a language that is separate from the other languages. There's primarily the language group, language family of that region is the Bantu language group. And a lot of the uh, different tribes have languages that derive from this Bantu root. Their language looks nothing like that. They look nothing like the rest of the people. They're very tall with aquiline noses and a reddish, beautiful, deep, reddish brown skin and these startlingly white teeth. Whereas the agricultural people in the region are much shorter with wider noses. Their bodies are closer to the ground. They, they're farmers or agricultural people primarily. And there's a lot of tension between the agriculturalists and the, the pastoralists, which is really what the Messiah are. They move with their cattle. So they, you know, they have a historic tradition. They believe that the cattle are their divine providence, that God gave them the cattle as their domain. And they used to move down the, I guess they started moving down the Nile and they continued to move and follow the crops and, you know, travel about. And then eventually as things got more organized and governments and politics, really, they were relegated to smaller and smaller plots of land. And it's really changed their culture quite a bit. And it's hurt them a lot. How about their family structure? I think that's so important to the story. Mm. Men rule. Talk to me. Sure. Yeah. The family, they live in these things called bomas is the their word for it. Crawl is the English word, although most people don't know the word crawl. It's K-R-A-A-L. It's a collection of dung huts. Their huts are made from cow dung and straw. And there's a sort of a lead male who's a warrior, as all the men are. And there's sort of the dominant male. And he brings around his brothers or his wife's sister's brothers-in-law. And they live in a circular, uh, or actually it's more like a spiral of houses. And they live among the cattle. And there's acacia, which is a thorny branch, branches all the way around. And so there's the man and his wife, and he can have multiple wives. And that's like any polygamous culture, that is a sign of prosperity. And and then this sort of inferior males and their wives, and they respond to his leadership. Everyone bends to his direction and his will. It's very powerful, very patriarchal. And what is the role of women in their society? Uh, women are responsible for the children and the home and for feeding the man and his friends. And that is about it, having children and pleasing the men. It's very, very second role in that society. And before we go further down the road of the woman's role in that, I want to talk to you about this. They, As you said, they are, they are uh, meat and milk and blood mm-hmm. <laughs> eaters. You once had to drink blood, yes, from a goat. <laughs> well, it, it's funny because I, believe it or not, I was a vegetarian. <laughs> 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 so I was pretty clever. And um, when the blood was offered to me, they slaughtered a goat in my honor when I arrived. And they don't waste a thing. I mean, they popped out those warm kidneys and they handed them to the kids. They threw the intestines to the dogs. Like they don't waste a bit. But uh, the blood, yeah, (laughs) they offered me blood. And I demurred saying that really, uh, I wanted to make sure that the warriors had their strength 
And I got a lot of very approving head nods. <laughs> grateful, oh grateful men. I just wasn't going to do it. I couldn't do it. I mean, it's fascinating, right? <laughs> I, and you were quick on your feet on that one. I don't know if I would have been that clever. Or I that. bet you would. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever. So so this is the thing that, that totally intrigues me. The family you lived with, talk to me about the woman. I mean, what a gift to share so closely experience of women from such a different culture. Revelatory for sure, but painful too. So talk to us about the practice of arranged marriages and the domestic violence that runs rampant, but is accepted culturally. In fact, Maasai women and young girls are pretty much powerless. They are pretty much powerless. They're really in service of the men. And the woman who was the wife, she, her name was Sinta May. And she was, she was really headstrong in her way, but she was completely deferential to Kimutai, her husband. And they had an unusual arrangement because he, um, worked in Nairobi during the week and he'd come home on the weekends. So she really ruled the roost during the week, but then she was always put back in her place when he came back. And so she lorded over me and the other women in a way because she was married to the head honcho. And the other men in the Boma, they would leave every morning to graze the cattle and they wouldn't be back until nightfall. So she was such a contradiction and she was deceitful and she was jealous and she was strong, but she snapped like a twig when the men came back. Um, it was very interesting to watch that. Well, the way that the society is set up, all women are the enemy, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, sure. With polygamy, I think unless you're just extremely easygoing, any woman, any any single woman certainly is a threat. And they aren't kind to widows either. I mean, it's just, it's just tough. It's just tough. And girls aren't raised in a way that we would consider loving. I mean, they're extra hands at best, burdens at, at worst. So so within that culture, there is this other thing. It's called female circumcision. Mm. For those who might not know, I can't imagine, but you just never know. Tell us about the ritual itself and its purpose. So what the Maasai believe is that all children are born sort of philosophically sexless, that they're sort of all just kids. I mean, yes, they're female and male, but they're all just kids until they become men and women. And the way that a young man becomes a, a young boy becomes a man is he is circumcised and it's just as if you here except you're doing it at 12 13 14 years old and it's done without anesthetic and it's oh. done very publicly so the boys have it one way the girls have it a different way they're I don't know if I can say this word their clitoris is you can removed. say that word <laughs> uh, that word that's fine and it's done usually by a grandmother or an older woman in the community it's a horrible horrible. I mean, just as horrible as you could imagine, again, with, without anesthetic. And the best thing you can say about it is it's done in private. There are women around the hut where it's being done, but it's done in, the, in a smoky, dark, dirty place. And you can imagine there's profuse bleeding. And the young girl has to, you know, wear black just as the young boys do until they heal. So everybody knows what's happened. And and many girls don't survive. It's not it's not a great practice. And yet, and yet the the girls and boys look forward to that day because it's when they become fully female or fully male. It's it's incredible. Do they understand the sacrifice that is to 
their pleasure to to living life to its fullest? Or, uh, or is that sacrifice yes. part of it? Yeah, I think they do know, but I think that they think that that's a frivolity, maybe. The boys don't, as you know, I mean, right. if anyone <laughs> understands, boys don't sacrifice that much. The girls do, but I think it, in their minds, it wouldn't be worth, at least at that time, it wouldn't be worth the, the trade-off, you know, to not be a woman and to not be marri- marriageable. Mm. Before I bring Esther uh, Solar in, one of the experts on violence against women and children and the founder and president of Futures Without Violence, and we discuss in more depth female circumcision and violence against women worldwide. I want to ask you this, Joni, a point well made in your book in which I would like you to elaborate now, okay? We have to be careful about not only how we view the ways of other cultures, but also how we respond. I think that was a really good point you've made in the book. We have to be careful of a tendency to judge rather than to understand. I'd like you to elaborate on that as we further this discussion. Yeah, because on the one hand, I'm an advocate very much so for the rights of women and girls. I'm just wild for education. I believe that is the first and foremost obligation we have is to educate all children, but particularly make sure that the girls who are underserved get that education. But on the other hand, there's a part of me that is just relying 100% on empathy. Like this is not, this is just founded from my experience that it's not always right to march in to a culture or to a place uh, with your beliefs in tow and proclaim that what someone is doing or what a culture or community is doing is wrong because it's just you don't have all the facts and you can't make that point fairly and you certainly won't be heard you know so I feel like there's a whole host of reasons not to um, not to for, for sensitivity first but also just practical reasons where if you want to affect change or if you believe that change is imperative, the way to affect it is to first be a listener before you start your talking and before you start your action. Because there aren't always ways to reconcile every point, but there certainly are better ways to achieve reconciliation through communication, sharing and respect. We're not going to get there if we don't start with the listening. And there, I think there's another point to be made, and, and I found this to be true. Part of the work that I do in Uganda is we've been building a technical training school because these kids going to college, what's the point unless they're going to be professional at something correct? Because where are they going to practice? I mean, there there is right. that. So to give them a skill as they go forward in life to sew to this, that's a very meaningful, important con- contribution to who they can become as effective adult human beings. That being said, I, I want to ask you about this, or I want to state this on my point of view and hear what you have to say, and that is we have to be very careful how we impose our ways mm-hmm. on other cultures, because we can actually risk something else here, which is demanding a rapid change to a society that just isn't ready for it yet. In itself can be something that's very dangerous. And I know, you know, watch these people, you know, um, the NGOs, you know, run in with all of their whatever, you know, they, they got their ideas and they're told and, and just, you know, I'm not so sure we can do that all the time without causing more problems than are there in the first place. What are your thoughts? I agree with you 110%. I absolutely agree with you. And I, and I, you see it time and time again, and everyone's well-meaning. Yes. I mean, I don't mean to say that... <laughs> You know, you don't want to slap anybody for wanting to help. But at the same time, you hear these stories of everything from church groups and, and uh, you know, school groups going and building schools and they don't know how to build. And so the poor local people have to go and like take everything down and relay the bricks and it becomes more of a hassle. And that's the innocent, laughable story. It can be far more devastating. It can be done on a corporate level. It can be done by NGOs. And I mean, I, I just couldn't agree with you 
more there. It, it can't be scorched earth. You're going to have to spend some time listening, learning and adapting your beliefs and your well-meaningness, I guess, yeah. with, with uh, what is really actually on the ground and what people have to live with and what you'll leave in your wake. I mean, those are all really important factors. And, you know, coming now living in the in the Bay Area, and there's so many, you know, people establishing foundations, all these dot com people that want to fix everything that's broken. And, you know, there's an app for that or whatever. And, <laughs> and they're working on scarce information, you know? Yeah. And it's very dangerous. And I've seen it with even groups that I've, I've traveled with when mm -hmm. I go over there, you know, and, and sometimes you just, my eyes roll because you cannot be that righteous. That's right. You just cannot be that righteous because you know what? We can empathize, but we can't walk in their shoes or their lack of their right. okay. You're absolutely right. You were listening to the Hallie Jane show. My guest today, our author of Mile 46, Face to Face in Maasai Land, Joni Binder, and the president and founder of Futures Without Violence, Esther Solar. We'll be back in a minute. Stay with us. Hi, this is Hallie Kesser-Jane. Are you enjoying the show? I hope so. And I hope that you'll tell your friends about it and help us grow our family. How can you help? That's easy. Share the link to the show with your friends or my show's player. And I would love it even more if you'd recommend they visit my website at HallieKesserJane.com. I look forward to seeing all of you there. I want to bring Esther Solar into the conversation a little bit about Miss Solar. An expert on violence against women and children, Esther Solar founded Futures Without Violence over 30 years ago and transformed it into one of the world's leading violence prevention agencies. Futures Without Violence has set the pace for innovative educational programs, public education campaigns, policy development, and leadership training designed to prevent and end violence against women and children worldwide. Under Solar's direction, Futures Without Violence was a driving force behind passage of the Violence Against Women Act of 1994, the nation's first comprehensive federal response to the violence that plagues families and communities. Now, she is committed to passage of the International Violence Against Women Act to prevent gender-based violence on a global scale. Solar's many awards include a Kellogg Foundation National Leadership Fellowship, a Corette Israel Prize, and a University of California Public Health Heroes Award. Solar holds an honorary doctorate from Simmons College in Boston. Let's talk. What a pleasure to have you, Esther. Joni's book has given us a perfect opportunity to talk about violence against women. You are committed to the passage of the International Violence Against Women Act to prevent gender-based violence on a global scale. But first, talk to the issue of violence against women on the international scale in 2016. How are we progressing? Are we getting somewhere? Um, the short answer is yes and no. Um, excellent question. Uh, we've been working on the violence, International Violence Against Women Act for many years. We got um, started at the Beijing Conference for Women in 1995, where there were 25,000 women from all over the world who put the issue of violence against women um, on the international uh, agenda. And post 
Beijing, it became an issue that many, many countries were grappling with. And the good news is there has been some progress. The bad news is even in Kenya, which Mile 46 and Joni's extraordinary book talks about, 45% of women and girls between the ages of 15 and 49 have experienced physical and sexual violence. That is almost half of all the women and girls in Kenya. And the numbers are like that across the world. And we've been pushing for the passage of the International Violence Against Women Act for many years. While we haven't been successful in getting it passed in Congress, I do want to say one thing. The Obama administration took the blueprint that the International Violence Against Women Act created. And when Secretary Clinton was Secretary of State, she took... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All of the elements of the International Violence Against Women Act, and she implemented them. We now have a global ambassador for women. We now have real money going from our country from the State Department and USAID supporting programs around the globe, particularly in areas that are most needed. So that is part of the good news. Now that we have a changing, about to have a changing administration, it's even more important that we pass the International Violence Against Women Act, but we will keep up the fight as long as we need to, as long as one girl or one woman is hurt in the world. I love it. I absolutely love it. It's so powerful. We live in a global society today. Yes, and we the, do. And the internet is available in countries in Africa. I mean, I've been in the middle, you know, in the bush in, in, in Uganda, and they've got the internet better than we have in where I live in Florida right now. I love it. Ah, I mean, right? We're in Florida. I'm in Vero Beach area, and uh, the, the internet, they don't have it. Uh, I'm on the water, so they haven't quite caught up to where they need to be, unfortunately. I'm always at war with Comcast about it, but you know, they're trying. I can tell you in Uganda, that's not the case. Everybody's got a mobile yeah. phone, and it works like uh, like wonderful. But but here's me on this. It is available in countries like Africa and third mm-hmm. world nations. Mm-hmm. But what are you up against beyond cultural mores? I mean, is it a male-led power structure that refuses to yeah. give way, a religious yeah. base? Talk to me about the idea of what you're you're really up against so that people understand what you're up against. Yeah. Um, Helen, it's a great question. I think it is about social norms. I think it is about empowerment. I think it is about leadership. Um, and I also think it's about resources. So it's a combination. Um, you know, Joni's book talked about female genital mutilation and she talked about it. It was over what, tw- Joni, how many years ago? 
um, were you, uh, did you, did 28. you? 28 years ago. And so, I mean, female genital mutilation in Kenya, for example, um, has gone down. It was like 37%, I believe, in 1998. But, you know, it's still 27% in 2008 and 2009. So um, we need changing leaders. We need men to step up more powerfully and be partners with women who are organizing around changing norms and who are organizing programs in country. Um, and I think you'll see increasing, uh, the numbers are going to keep getting better um, and going in the right direction. Um, and uh, we just need more organizing and we need more resources and we need more donors to invest in communities and in programs that are really both changing the laws and enforcing the laws because today there's there's still impunity. There are still people who are not held accountable for egregious acts, and that's just not okay. Then you have a power structure of a male-dominated society Correct. not readily wanting to give up their power. Okay, we get Correct. that. I mean, we get that here even with men of this women right, right, of our generation exactly. trying to figure that one out and get past it. But but talk to me about this because it is about education. And how do you get to those power people? How do you educate them to a different way that won't they won't feel that their their structure is being lost, that their power is being lost if they take a new tact to how they treat women? How do we get there? Well, um, that's a hard one. Well, it is a hard one. And yet I just have to tell you a story about the U.S. government, because I think it's important for us to keep perspective here. Well, when I was in my 30s and walking the halls of Congress, trying to pass the first bill that would address violence against women and violence in the family in the U.S. in 1984. And we had members of our Congress who were supportive. And what I found out when that bill was being debated on the floor, some of the members of Congress who were supporting it came over to me and said, you're not going to believe what my colleagues are telling me. And I said, well, well, tell me what they're telling you so I can believe it or not believe it. And they said, you know what they called the first bill to end violence against women and kids in America in 1984, the Take the Fun Out of Marriage Act? Uh. And that was in the U.S. Congress yeah. in 1984. Yeah. And so to the extent that we have our own power structure in the United States that has kept this issue from not being completely solved, I want to make sure that we keep that context and that that story in our hearts and minds, because it's not just over there where there are problems. There are problems here as well. Right. Um, and we need to partner. And, and there are extraordinary women activists around the world who are really changing the conversation. And I remember um, after that those horrific rapes in India, and I saw pictures on the front page of the New York Times, and I saw as many young men standing in solidarity with women. Um, and I said, you know, change is going to happen. Well, yeah, maybe a little slower than we might want, but yeah, change is, you know, but change uh, is going to happen. I, I'm an optimist. I have to just tell you that full disclosure. Uh, my dad joined one club in his life. It was the Optimist Club. I can't make that stuff up. <laughs> well, I think that's the only way that you get to do what you do and be as successful probably, as you are probably. at doing what you do. And what would we do without you, Esther? But talk, Joni, talk to me about this. Do you experience in Kenya, uh, did your experience in Kenya give you a clue as to what women are up against? 
against. Is their greatest enemy, and, and maybe you might want to join in on this, uh, Est, in a minute too, is their greatest enemy themselves, they don't know any better, they're beaten down to uh, having no sense of self, there's a resignation. Maybe if you don't know that there's a different way that this doesn't have to be your fate, uh, you you can't fight it. So you know what I'm saying? Esther? I, uh, uh, Joni, yeah. talk to me. Well, my, my parry to that is it's not their own fault that they don't know better. And it's not their own fault that they weren't educated. And it's not their own fault that they are, if they're resigned to it, it's because an alternative um, hadn't been presented. Or And I think that, you know, that's where an international action or participation, certainly going back to what you and I were talking about before, becomes an important piece of that puzzle, right? Because there are women, and I don't remember which organization it is, but there are women that are going to Kenya and working with Maasai mothers who have girls who are of age to go through their circumcision. And in, they come together and they have weeks-long meetings. Um, they meet once a week with their mothers and the daughters. And there are these Western women's, women who are doing it. And at the end of this series they have a piece of black cloth that they tear. Mm. And that is the symbolic, you know, passing through the threshold from girlhood to womanhood. So I think, you know, there are other ways of presenting the information. They're not going to get it from the men and they're not going, unless that their parents are paying for them to go to school and they happen to have an evolved, enlightened teacher or mentor that they find along the way they're not going to find it in the regular thread of their lives. And, so, And then when they do see possibility that there could be a different way because they, they're presented with it. I mean, I've, I've sat in with women's group, as I said, in Uganda, where we're, you know, gently educating them as to different ways to do different things and different possibilities. The fear that you see in their eyes about the possibility even of thinking it could be different, can be overwhelming. A quick story. I ran across a story that I had a woman in Uganda who whose father had taken a second wife and made that his main wife, completely mm. discarded his other children, which is very typical, by the way, of what happens there. And then the only father that they've ever known kind of throws them, you know, goodbye, good luck or whatever. She took off for the city and said, I know that there's a better way. She'd been around enough to know that there could be an alternative. So she goes and her father finds her and beats the mm, out of her, which is the day after I found her and she was just about half dead. What was on that woman's face? I will never forget. I could never even begin to describe everything that was etched there. But most of all, when we tried to, the, I was with the two other women and we tried to say, we, there is a better way. You don't have to be beaten. You can be independent. There are other, you know, she just was so frightened oh, yeah. of the possibility because being controlled to the possibility of I can control myself in and of itself uh, is something that you have to overcome in educating these women. Talk to mm-hmm. me, Esther. Yeah. Um- you're absolutely right. Um, and that story is really chilling. Um, and I, I do think one of the reasons why there's been such a push, 
um, by the World Bank and, and other banks and other donors, particularly Bill and Melinda Gates, to really uh, focus on girls' education and to figure out who are the strategic partners in local communities to actually do that, it really will make a huge difference. Um, and there's been some success in terms of getting more young girls educated um, based on the data that is now coming out. And the other thing you said that I think is really, really important is the use of, the use of the Internet in really creating the possibility of norm-changing campaigns and using mobile, using radio, using anything we have at our disposal to actually create different kinds of message that are part of the surround sound. So if we can educate more girls and we're moving in the right direction, we have to continuously make sure that our government as well as other governments are keeping the pressure on. Um, we will, again, over time, start seeing some change. And the other piece of it that we're particularly concerned about is that without educating our girls and without creating the stability that that pathway creates, we create very un, uh, we, we create, um, civil unrest. We create societies and communities that are not very, very stable, which makes them vulnerable to a whole host of problems, including violent extremism. So it is in our self-interest to figure this out. And with our partners at the UN, with our partners at the World Bank, State and USAID. And that's why I think that even the passage, the symbolic passage of the International Violence Against Women Act for the United States government is a really important marker to say we're part of a global community, as you said, Allie, and we need to really seriously, strategically be a part of a global community because so many women and girls are being hurt and it's creating very unstable communities and societies. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, right. I mean, you know, I could go down a thousand different rat holes with you on that. Yeah, no, well, no I really like the rat holes. I, I, lo- I, mean, I love I, that answer. True. No, no, no. But I love the answer. I think the answer is, is all it's D all of the above. And these are all the different things that we would have to do. Certainly the United States in a role as affecting change, being right. the leader in that change would certainly take it a, you know, a long way for other governments to get it. I, you know, the thought that crossed my, the, the, the piece that you said in there about destabilizing even governments over something like this, you know, this is what we're up against now. And so it really is a fine line we have to walk. Uh, and, and it ain't no easy, uh, you know, uh, high wire. To walk no, right now. and I think it's a really important um, message that we have to get out out there because it's not just it. It is our collective. Um, it is it is our it it is politically important because the cost of not doing something about it and creating all these vulnerable, unstable communities is we have a new enemy out there and it's violent extremism and it gets married to the instability to to these vulnerable communities absolutely we have to be careful about it yeah no question here's something else 
female genital yes. mutilation. I came across this yes. and this just startled me. The number of women and girls at risk for female genital mutilation in the United States. I know, I know. What? Because it's yeah. more, let me, let me finish this, has more than yeah. doubled in the past 10 years, according to new figures released by the Population Reference Bureau. Uh, and there are other uh, uh, um, um, people who've come out um, supporting this. And you know where this is happening the most in the U.S.? This, this is even more startling. California, New York, maybe Minnesota, I get that. What's going on here? This is terrifying to me. I'll give it to you, Esther. Uh, well, you know, I, I can't say I know all the answers, except that I think there are communities that come to the United States and bring the cultural norms uh, that they lived with for many, many years. And uh, we haven't done a good enough job to figure out how to partner with those communities and really create the change that is needed. Um, we did have... And, and so I think that's what's happening. I think there are more communities here who have brought that tradition and that cultural norm. And we, and, and you know, the other, th the other piece of this is we really haven't been talking about it in the media. So I'm really glad you raised it, but we need more coverage. I have found over the years, if we can get on the front page of the Washington Post and the New York Times and other places and on your show, etc., we have a better opportunity to create interest in trying to figure out how to deal with this problem. And without that, it becomes a problem that's very contained, not really known, and a couple studies come out, but nobody's really covered it. I don't think people know what you just talked about. I think I'm a fairly uh, educated and informed person person because of what I do. Yeah. I, did, I did not know this. And this, yeah. this has shocked me. And this yeah. is something I want to yeah. work on because I think this is just ridiculous that this is not on the front page of the New York Times, as you say, or the Washington yeah. Post or, you know, the LA uh, papers. I mean, this is just nuts to me. Right. I, I, unbelievable. Uh, Joni, you, you were witness to all of this, to the rituals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Indeed. Yeah. You know, there's another side to this. You as a young woman, mm-hmm being exposed to this. That's yeah. how did that affect you and how can that emotion and and intellectual um uh, change that you had to to embrace in order to to deal with that to accept that that is a part of of life that you knew nothing about. How can you use that to go forward? Certainly your book does goes a long way in helping people educated. But but talk to me about your personal experience, because I've not run across that personally, and I don't know how I would respond to having that happen so close to me. Well, yeah, I, you know, before I left, and I talk about this in the book, before I ever went, I had just learned about it. I mean, it was really as shocking to me as the news you just shared with us about California and New York. Like That really stops me in my tracks. Right. So I'm 21 and I hear about this and I'm strident and I have all the confidence and conviction of youth. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying, I'm going to go and I'm going to stop this, right? And if you recall in the book, I talk about the young man I met with before I left saying, you don't know anything. You can't waltz in there and, you know, discount their generations long tradition, et cetera, et cetera. So I went in already understanding that it was a very conflicted and very complicated issue. So when I got there, um, I had this, you know, like the angel and the devil on my shoulder, right? I mean, I'm, I hear these different voices and I had had a relationship already with the young girl, um, there T and just about her anticipation about her, 
um, her event, her ceremony. And so I understood the value to the culture and it still rattled me. But on that same day, there was a wedding, right? And this young girl who couldn't lift her eyes, who was taking inch long steps from her boma to the boma of her groom. And I mean, all the, all these young girls in that very, you know, subjugated place in that community, it, it was so in conflict and so in contrast to everything that I was and how I'd grown up. And so there was just so much to process. And I've continued to process from that day through the writing of the book and in this conversation. And I do hope to what Esther was saying, what you're saying, Hallie, it just that maybe we take this, you know, this little meeting of the minds today and spark a larger conversation. Because to me, learning what you just said, I mean, I suppose I could have imagined that that might have been because we have immigration from cultures where this happens. But actually hearing that it's a little startling and a little, um, I feel like we can affect more change here because there are more examples of life going on without it. Um, I, I think and the more that, that we can go back to the to the native countries too, right? Uh, well, first of all, I think the more that we know, obviously, the more and the more we may disagree with, the more we can affect change. I mean, we if we don't know, right, Esther, and right. And, and it's not out there for the people to see. Right. We have no, there is no change. It just remains. Right. So, so acknowledging the reality of it in and of of itself sets off that whole you know, chain of events that's going to, you know, change the, 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 where it's going and how it's gone to something new and different in the future, which is so much of the work, by the way, that Esther does. Bless you. Bless you. Bless oh, you. Thank, no, thank, because thank that's, you, you, you know, you. that's uh, true, true, and, true. And you have to partner with, with, uh, media partners, the uh, Center for Investigative Reporting, NPR. I mean, we have we have a lot of really wonderful media partners, too, that can amplify uh, the story. Yeah, and I think that's that's critical. Uh, let's take it to the political a little bit more here, um, because I want, uh-huh. I want a point that Joni had made, a tendency to think that our way is the best way. We talked a little bit about mm-hmm. this before you came in on the conversation. Mm-hmm. But Joni, you say that such thinking is what gives groups like Boko Haram and ISIS the conviction uh, and motivation to do what they do. I'd like to elaborate. I'd like to hear what both of you have to say about that. Because again, we're talking about walking a very fine line here, uh, in how we affect change, uh, and, and, and what could be some negative, you know, repercussions of what we do. Uh, you want to start with that, uh, Joni? And then Esther can put her two cents in. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it actually flows from what Esther was talking about before, which right. was, you know, you upset a structure and then there is an equal, and uh, opposite reaction, right? And so as things, whether they destabilize in a, in a familial or community way or more broadly through a region, um, there are people who want to hold onto power. I think we see that everywhere. And um, when you look at Boko Haram or uh, at Al-Shabaab, which is, you know, in Ethiopia above um, Kenya, there is this desire to return to things from a very, um, you know, rudimentary place, like the, the original writings of the, you know, uh, the conversations that the Prophet Muhammad had or that Jesus had or whatever, where you take things to that extreme where you're going back thousands of years and you want, that's, that's the world that you want to exist. A woman's place in that world, um, it certainly doesn't look like it, it does now. And, uh, yeah, walking that line in how do you empower 
communities and women and girls and educate the girls and the women and hope that those things stick and that there's some support with the partners, with the, with the male partners and with government partners and with, uh, religious leaders and with community leaders and teachers. I mean, it's a, it's a complex web. Um, but it's like everything you can't, I don't know if there's a sweeping change that can be made. I think it's one of those things where you have to acknowledge each success every time, you know, a girl doesn't have to go through FGM or every time a girl gets an education or every time a new school is built and it maintains those, those are all wins. Um, and cumulatively and when they happen throughout different communities and they branch out, that gives us a lot more to work with. And it, the awareness is key and the commitment is key. Esther, do you have anything you want to say on that? Yeah. I want to go back to, uh, yes, I, um, <laughs> unfortunately, no, I, I, I do. Um, what we know, um, unfortunately is that rape has been used as a tool of war in many, many situations. And we're seeing it now in bold relief, uh, was certainly used, uh, in world war two, as we know. Um, and we've also learned that when we looked at what was happening in the Congo, that child soldiers, who were recruited to commit horrific acts were also themselves raped. And they then perpetrated rapes when they got older. Um, so it's a very vicious cycle. And we know that young kids who are exposed to horrific violence, who are sexually assaulted, both girls and boys, they manifest that behavior differently when they become adults. But we also have to have a way of interrupting. Once we know the child soldier in the Congo was raped brutally as a young boy, not to do anything to heal that young soul and just allow that pain and anger to fester is also part of the problem. So we need a very holistic approach to the issue of how we're going to get back in there and really try to repair these societies that are on the fringe of really uh, doing horrific, it's not the society is doing it, but actors in these communities that are doing horrific acts of violence to young people. Um, Because if we don't heal them, if we don't heal what's going on in the camps right now, uh, we will see it again 20 years from now and it will be something very, very different. So just wanted to put that in context. Right. Rape has been used as a tool of war forever. forever. I agree with you. Uh, here, here's, yeah, absolutely. And here's another thing. I read this today in the Washington Post. This blew me away. Boko Haram, when the girls are come back, they're not being treated like victims. They're being tr- ostracized in their communities. Yes. Uh, and I think that that is something else that happens here that maybe we want to touch on just briefly, uh, uh, yes. which is something we're fighting. Yeah. And, and we're, we're fighting, actually, we're fighting the same thing here. Um, yes, we're fighting it there. They are ostracized. But when a young girl is raped on our high school campuses, um, and she then seeks redress, and it is potentially a very, it is a very complicated issue for her as well, because um, it is people in the in the community start taking sides, 
for the boys and the girls. And so I, I just want to keep uh, keep bringing us back to the fact there's so much work that we haven't gotten right, right either here. Um, and yes, um, so many of the young girls who are being sexually assaulted in our high school classes are being ostracized when they come forward and ask for help in the United States as we're sitting here talking. And it's, it's, so we have a big problem right, in the world. Right. I th- I'm so glad. I'm, I'm so glad that you keep bringing it back to us. I, I think that's so. Well, I just it's want right. Us not You're to right. Say it's the other. No, because, it isn't. Yeah, exactly. We right. we got to do it all around the world, but we have so much work to do in the U.S. as well. So so, Esther, cut to the chase yes. for me. What can women of the world do to help other women at home and abroad living under this this violence? Can, I mean, Congress needs to enact legislation. You were all the three of us certainly are on the same page on that. Yeah. But but we as women, what role can we have as individual women in fomenting change? I I think that if if we can name concepts for women to embrace who might be, li- then maybe they will embrace it and it won't be left up to you and organizations like you, but individual women also, you know, crying out, you know, we, we need to change some things here. We yeah. really need well, to. Well, one is, yes, we need to, uh, we do need to enact, I have to say it, I'm a political person, the International Violence right. Against Women Act. We also have, I mean, there are so many extraordinary organizations around the world creating great change and it's really easy to donate. Um, you know, uh, little money really goes a long way um, to a number of NGOs that are out there. And so I would really encourage that. I would also, given that we're on a radio show, people should write about it. They should talk about it. There are wonderful activist journalists around the world telling these stories, and we all need to come together to amplify it, whether we do it on our Facebook page, our link, you know, our um, our Twitter, what, whatever we can do, because we are now more connected than ever through mobile and through the internet. We need to spread good work, and we need to let people know when there's a crisis. And so I think those three things, help us pass some good piece of legislation, um, give some money. It works. I really encourage that. And also amplify the story. So Esther, if you could, yes. if, if, if bring, bring it back to domestic violence, mm-hmm. so much has changed and so much hasn't. We've just made that right. point. If one wish could be met on your list that would impact the end of violence against women, what would that one be wish be? Has anybody asked you? I would love to know what your thoughts are. Oh, if I could have just one My thing. one wish? Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> if I could just have, if I know this could be impactful if. Yeah, no, but I think my one wish is um, to reach every, if you're talking about in the U.S., but I think I'm also talking about if we can reach every young person um, and give them the tools, uh, both educate them, but also give them the, the tools to engage in healthy relationships and create a new norm, that's my one wish. I love it. I love it. Joni, you took everything that a young college student learned on a brief exchange trip to Africa, a trip fraught with the good, the bad, the ugly, (laughs) and sometimes funny, as told, and I want to hawk her book for her, beautiful book, Mile 46. You turned your experience into something positive and both enlightening and educational to share with your sisters and brothers around the world. The last word of your book startled me. Do you know what the last word of your book is? Um, it starts with an R. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty good. Rectify. <laughs> to yeah. rectify, remedy, yeah. cure, fix, yeah. repair, resolve. Yeah. 
Yeah. Your last thoughts as we wind this conversation down. Look, you know, I want to say that um, whoever's listening, hopefully this has sparked um, an ember that was already there or, you know, given oxygen to that ember or maybe sparked something new to think about. I think to what Asta said, I would make that same wish. I think relationships and the communication piece are so important because the world, it does get better if we're all, you know, moving towards the positive and moving towards healing and moving towards doing good. Um, you know, and I hope people feel some inspiration to participate in the collective good. I've been speaking with Joni Binder, author of Mile 46, Face to Face in Mass Island. For more information about Joni Binder, visit her website at JoniBinder.com. You'll find all of Joni's social network connection links there. And I've been speaking with Estes Solar, the pioneering woman's advocate who founded Futures Without Violence. Visit futureswithoutviolence.org for further information. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Hell Cancer Jane Show, a production of Resac LLC. Associate producer, Suzanne Probst. Music by Tony Rosales Jazz. Visit HallieCasserChain.com.